0: right at the edge of the sunlight penetration where that thermocline forms, which is a, a rapid change in depth over a short... That's where they'll sit because that's where the, the oxygen is. So out there, there's lots of these little tiny things called zooplankton um, that used to frustrate us for years, but now, um, thanks to some English flies and techniques, with flies like a booby or particularly a blob, um, we can imitate uh, the color of the zooplankton and uh, and or clusters of it. And we actually fish bead-headed blobs below indicators, static, like you'd fish with um,
1: people. That was Phil Roy digging into the diversity of stillwater fishing, beadhead blobs, booby flies, and the thermocline today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please take a moment, if you can, and share this episode with one or two other people you think would need uh, some Stillwater goodness here. Click that share link in your app and share it out right now. Phil Roy, the Stillwater Guru, is back, this time featuring his new Orvis book on stillwater fishing. Phil walks us through the step-by-step to stillwater fishing as he uh, uses his book today as a guide. We also find out how he ended up writing a book uh, with Orvis and dispels a bunch of myths about uh, steel water and lake fishing today. Before we get started, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to get your custom net today. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly to get started right now. Let's wait for it, and action. I've got Phil Roy on from uh, FlycraftAngling.com. How's it going, Phil?
0: It's going good, Dave. It's good to talk to you again.
1: Yeah. Uh, so today, we are going to jump back into Stillwater. We, we've we had a number of guests uh, on. Most recently, Brian Chan was on and, and dug into Cam Loops. Um, today, I want to dig into your new book because it's a great resource out there, and And uh, before we get there, maybe you could just start with, um, just give me a quick little summary since our last time, uh, what you've been up to. I mean, you've got the Steelwater app, a number of things. What's the biggest thing right now that's taken up time in your day that you're focusing on?
0: You mentioned the book, so that took a fair chunk of time. And with the outbreak of the pandemic and uh, face-to-face contact kind of shut down and borders shut down, um, sort of the traditional face-to-face speaking to clubs or, or um, shows or, or trips or things like that was difficult. But what it allowed me to do was to to actually explore something I've been wanting to do for over 25 years, and that's um, online learning, um, providing uh, the opportunity for people to, uh, you know, improve their Stillwater skills through online courses. Um, because I can't always, you know, my schedule doesn't always allow me to speak at every show or, you know, be at every club and things like that. So this allows individuals to, to take uh, some online training. So I've done some exploratory courses in it. Uh, right at the outbreak of the pandemic, I did one with a friend uh, called 21 Days, where we literally spent 21 straight days every evening uh, talking about a variety of still water subjects, basically from um, you know equipment right through to presentation tactics and things like that. So now I'm looking at developing even more focused courses i've done some online fly tying courses as well uh live ones and also generating what we call evergreen content where somebody could just sign into an area enroll for the course and take it at their leisure and they can you know review that course material for days years (laughs) centuries it'll be there forever so yeah so it's kind of exciting
1: that's cool do you find that i i had somebody recently i've been reading the book um kind of a marketing book and it was about, it's a good book, but he was saying that, you know, you should read this book once, but not once, but read it 10 times. Then you'll be a total expert in it. Do you feel like people have to watch those multiple times to become a, or do you think one time is good enough to get into it?
0: It probably varies, but, um, you know, I think this is sort of a standard I was told whenever you're doing a presentation or a course or something that if uh, one of your students retains 10%, you're, you're pretty good as an instructor. And, uh, I wouldn't wouldn't always say I'm up there. So I think a lot of us, we have to repeat things over and over again. I know my wife tells me I have to.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's (laughs) For me to have something sink in. (laughs) That's the great thing about the podcasting, too, is that right now I could just put a link in the show notes to episode 34, which was when we chatted last and um, over three years ago. And you know, we talked about a bunch of—I don't remember everything, but I know we talked about a little bit more on your background and dug into some on chronomids. And you've got a bunch of, um, you know, some patterns and good stuff. So I'm not going to dig deep into all that. We'll probably hit on a little bit of that today. But if anybody wants to check that, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can listen. But um, but on this one, I want to hear. You know, so we, you've got these online courses. You've got this book. We're going to talk about in a little bit. Is, you know, if somebody didn't pick up the book or if they picked up the online course, vice versa, are, is there similar overlap in the topics or is there some place or, or is the book pretty much a f- like take everything into account?
0: Well, the book is pretty comprehensive. Um, that was my goal going into it. I didn't just want to, you know, leave things dangling. I tried to be as complete as I can. So there is some uh, overlap on the courses, but uh, there's always a live component and the ability to. Interact with people as well when we're doing a live course. You know, if they have specific questions to their areas or their needs, um, we can deal with those. But um, And also with the courses, we can become more focused and talk about specific things like still water entomology. We could do it looking at classes on and, um, you know, how to approach a new lake and uh, tactics for tough days and, um, you know, using electronics. And, and you know, you mentioned Chironum is such a specific discipline that everybody has Interests in and, and that method is all like most still like most fly fishing methods are always evolving there's always changes and you know two years ago i didn't don't do the things i used to do then i've kind of refined them and hopefully improve them and, and do them slightly differently
1: there you go and do you find um when you're doing these i'm not sure where all the you know you get questions from people i'm sure all the time but uh, are there common questions that you is there one if you had to say what's the most common question you get on still waters
0: um That is a good question because there is a, you know, you do get a far ranging. It's, if I had one thing, and this is just pops to mind and I'm sure 20 minutes later, it'll be something else. But, you know, everybody puts such reliance on the fly pattern. Um, It seems to be the ultimate scapegoat for lack of fish. And a lot of times you know, fish will eat, you know, with all the diversity of fly patterns out there, it, sh- it surely can't be that, or we would have hit on the, the one perfect nymph, the one perfect streamer, et cetera. But sort of, um, miss, you know, doesn't quite, the presentation and how you move that fly and how you make, where you choose to, you know, to fish and why, and then, you know, your line choices, your retrieve speeds. You know, most, when I guide and do an online, um, you know, face-to-face, you know, destination schools and things like that, most people new to stillwater fly fishing move their flies too fast and don't let them sink long enough, right? As soon as that fly hits the water, they're pulling, right? And it's they have a wonderful fly on, but the fish are 10 feet down and you're fishing one, feet below, one foot below the surface. So, you know, that best fly is never going to ever see a fish.
1: Yep. There you go. Well, what if we, um, let's talk about the book first. Give us the title of the book there. The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing. Nice. So that's, and that's the Orvis. So I want to hear the Orvis story because we've had a number of guests recently. We had uh, Phil Monahan on, we had Perk, uh, Perkins before that. So we've had a number of Orvis is a great company, obviously, but I want to hear how this book came to be. Can you give us that little story?
0: Yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of unique a little bit, I think. So it all started, um, I was speaking at the New Jersey fly, the uh, Somerset fly fishing show in New Jersey. It's since moved to Edison just down the road. But uh, part of that show is any of the speakers who have books that have been published. They have an author's table uh, right next to the the there's a, there's a bookstore, actually inside the show that you can purchase books. And of course, all the speakers, the the bookstore does a great job making sure yeah. our books are there. So we're sitting there. Uh, we like it as a presenter. It's a place to sit down and take a break, and uh, you know, because most of the time we're standing and walking around, the legs get a little tired standing on concrete all day. Um, so it's a great place to rest. And I was partnered with Tom Rosenbauer. And, uh, you know, I've had the good fortune to film a few television shows with Tom and helped him out with the Orvis Guide to Stillwater Fly Fishing when it came to Stillwater content. So we're sitting there just, you know, in between people dropping by and saying hi, uh, just catching up. And he says to me, I, you know, we don't have a a Stillwater book in our Orvis Guide uh, to Fly Fishing series. He says, I think you'd be a, a great candidate for it. And so it was very flattering. And I thanked Tom for that. And, as you probably know, a lot of times at these shows, there's conversations that take place that uh, you know we drift apart and nothing materializes, but this one did. Um, a few emails were exchanged, hooked up to um, the publishing company, contracts sent, discussions, signatures signed, and all of a sudden... You know, that euphoria is like, wow, I'm going to do another book. And then the reality was wow, I'm going to do another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that's when the work starts. This isn't my first book. This is my fourth. So oh, wow. I knew, I knew what I was getting into. Um, and, but I'd always wanted to write this book. My three previous books were all fly tying focused. So this one's kind of, if you wanted to partner it, uh, you know, this is, now you know how to tie the flies. Now this is how you use them, right? And how you understand lakes. So, um, yeah, the, the original Agreement was for around 80,000 words and maybe 100 or so images. And when I was done three, three and a half years later, um, I had provided them with 110,000 words and close to 300 images and uh, diagrams. So it's pretty comprehensive.
1: There you go. Nice. Well, I, I want to dig into that book a little bit today just so we can um, maybe, if you're thinking of somebody here that's listening, you know, somebody maybe that has some experience fishing lakes, but they're heading out to a new lake. Would that book be good if somebody just had it and wanted to learn, you know, they've never been, say they're going to some lake in the mountains somewhere and right. You could have a small lake. You could have a big lake. How do you focus that when somebody, because there's a lot of diversity or are there a few things you can learn from this book that can help you on any lake?
0: Yeah, there's lots of things um, you can learn on this book. You know, it walks, the, the readers walk through equipment needs for lakes, um, all about watercraft and how to anchor a boat, you know, my thoughts on leaders and knots and dropper systems, how lakes work, you know, turnover and things like that, a pretty comprehensive chapter on, uh, you know, what trout eat, the entomology, that's important, and then retrieves, um, floating line tactics with and without indicators, Uh, floating line tactics for fishing dries and, and surface and targeting sighted fish, sinking lines, tractor techniques a little bit of uh, exploration of the locks out um, techniques, um, which is very common in Europe, and then talk about fly patterns. So it's, it's got a lot in there. It's uh, 300 and, oh, I'm looking at it here, 300, close to three over 300, close to 300 pages. It's thick. It's it's two pounds.
1: It's two pounds. Yeah, this, so this is a big, uh, this is a, yeah. like a- Eight yeah, and yeah, a half
0: decent, by 11, two pounds. Yeah, I was
1: going to say eight and a half by 11. Yeah, so this is a nice- um, book that you could, Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Prop up a desk
0: with it, you know, whatever.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Where would you recommend, just before we get into, because we're going to dig into the book and, you know, this resource, but where would you, if somebody asks you, like, they want to get that book, where do you send them?
0: I would send them to the uh, online Stillwater fly fishing store that myself and Brian Chan set up a number of years ago. Um, Of course, you can buy it in other locations, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, those kind of places. But the benefit of buying it through uh, mine or Brian's, first of all, it's in Canadian dollars. So for any American guests out there, they're getting a discount automatically due to exchange. And all the books that we um, sell in there on that store are all autographed. So every book oh, wow. comes with an autograph. So, yeah, Amazing.
1: It's,
0: we do it right out of my house. So.
1: There you go. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. So Okay, so that's great. So that's a great way to get an autographed uh, copy of that. Okay. Well, let's let's dig into it. You mentioned a few of the, uh, the chapters there, and we won't touch on, you know, Everyone in detail, but I'm just curious, maybe we can just touch the surface on a few of these. And we've talked about some of these on, like I said, other episodes, but, and maybe on the one we did last, I didn't listen to the whole thing recently, but let's start with, so chapter one in this is equipment needs, right? Is that... So we've got, and I know we've talked about some of the different things you need from a equipment perspective, rods, reels, but give us a, a highlight of that chapter, what we should know. And let's take a lake. Let's say we are heading to that mountain lake that's kind of a medium-sized lake. Um, you have no idea. You haven't been there. You're, you're jumping into it for the first time. Uh, what, what do they need if they don't know? Do they have to bring three rods or is one Okay.
0: Well, <laughs> the one thing about Stillwater fly fishers is we're a little paranoid. I think because um, we carry a lot of stuff. That's why we need boats. I think just not so much for moving around as to carry all the junk we like to take with us. Um, yeah. yeah, the equipment's actually broken into two chapters. So it's rods, lines, and reels, and then the second one's the accessories and all the other basically the stuff that goes into a kit bag. But um, you know, rods for, for lakes. I you know I would say. Your average rod weight is anywhere from a four to a seven weight um, rod. Most still water fly fishers I know like longer rods and at nine and a half or even the rods I use are are 10 feet, 10 feet, three inches, actually. And I know in Europe, even 11 foot rods are getting uh, more and more popular as well. So a four weight would be good, light wind, small fish, um, whereas seven weights would be obviously larger fish, heavier wind scenarios, or if you do a lot of lock style fishing, there's a lot more repetitive casting you're, and lock style for those that aren't familiar with it is, is is you're basically fishing downwind out of a drifting boat. You're casting and retrieving. You are not trolling and your um, drift is controlled by a big underwater parachute. We call it drogue. That you deploy upwind. It inflates and it, it controls the boat and slows it down, right? So, you know, there's nothing more frustrating whether you're anchored or drifting as kind of being in two minds, trying to focus on, you know, fishing and presentation and you're fighting with the boat the whole time it's you know it's not where it's where you want it to be and you're always having to you know play around with it so that's an important part so you can focus on the task at hand um and uh, but most times you know fives i use a six weight most of the time it's a good balance of sport and the ability to to deal with wind because wind is a constant companion um on a lake i always joke it's a bit like a puppy it can't come over and just in a nice controlled manner and sit beside you it's gonna right. jump on you try to bite your hand lick you <laughs> which is all good um so you need to sort of learn to deal with that you know so that's where that that seven weight system would come in like when i go down to argentina to fish i've done three trips down there now and working on a new one for 2022 getting the date sorted out but uh, that's sort of one of the places to catch arguably some of the largest rainbows on the planet you know the average fish size in in uh, Lago Strobel, or better known to many as jurassic lakes 15 pounds so and it's but it's patagonia it's known for its wind and uh i don't hide it there are some days you might have it flat calm but most times you're fishing in anywhere from 30 miles an hour and up even 60s and 70s and and uh, so it's rocking down there so in those situations sevens and eight weights of the order of the day between the wind and, and the size of the fish you, you're going to encounter
1: there you go okay and i was just trying to think back to um yeah we did an episode um with charlie mm-hmm. on jurassic lake and uh let's see episode 208 i'll put a link to that one as well just because we talked about um fishing that and i guess what well, did you work with charlie on that from mm-hmm. um i guess uh charlie uh
0: costanello no No, this is... Oh, okay. I do do my own hosted trips down there now. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah. So I work with a lodge down there, Estancia Laguna Verde, great lodge. Um, Has access not only to just over 14 miles of uh, lakeshore along there and um, also other smaller lakes around there as well. And just a, a great experience. Like when you travel that kind of way, it's the fishing is obviously the primary reason you go, but it's such a great, you know, you go into a different country, you know, from my... The complete other side of the world, as far as South End, and there's no Big Dipper, there's no Northern Lights, there's <laughs> no Northern yep. North Star. It's all the Southern Cross and totally different things like that. So it's it's a unique experience as well. So
1: that's right. Yeah, no, Jurassic is definitely a, a bucket list trip for a lot of people. That's cool. So
0: yeah, I've got a presentation. I call it's called Malbec meet and Monsters. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah.
1: There you go. Okay, and and, uh, we'll hopefully have some time to dig a little more into that today as well. Um, Give us, as you're talking about the accessories, what else? So we got the rod and just the normal stuff um, we could dig into, but what other accessories would be on that list?
0: Well, you've got uh, fly lines as well. The one thing uh, you'll find if you sort of step over into still water is that uh, there's a lot more line options out there. You know, a river and stream angler uh, for trout is, you know, primarily a floating line will do them well for many uh, presentation challenges, dries, emergers, nymphing, things like that. But in lakes, we fish floating lines, uh, a midge tip line, which is a floating line with a really subtle, short, uh, clear, intermediate tip on it. We fish hover lines, a variety of sinking lines, uh, sweep lines. So, you know, we're, we're, again, we're a little paranoid. We carry all those lines because they're like uh, specific tools in a toolbox. They have certain applications that they're just perfect for what you're, what you encounter. So you always want to be prepared for that for, because no matter how much you actually prepare, you're still not prepared for what mother Nature's going to do to you that day. Right. That's the unknown. You never know what, what she's going to throw at you and you want to make sure you have the tools to, to deal with that. So,
1: There you go. Okay. And, and if we can narrow you down, I know this isn't easy to do, but if you just had to say, you, you know, you're forced to pick one line, what, what are you going with?
0: Well, I like, I always like floating lines and it's not for, although there is, you know, most of the productive lakes I fish, in um, North America, don't have the dry fly and emerger opportunities that river and stream anglers are accustomed to. So we use floating lines more with indicator setups for fishing deeper water or fishing long leader setups, 15, 18, 25 feet, and that's you know primarily what I use a floating line for. But it's a very versatile system. But it's also a system you've got to put some time in uh, to understand how everything works. And again, let flies sink and move them slow enough because particularly when you're using a long leader system, you know, you're using a small weighted fly. Primarily it's for chironomids, midges, um, those kind of things, but other, you know, small food sources, scuds, mayfly nymphs, caddis, you know, basically anything will work. I've even done it with leeches. Um, but you've got a, you're playing with the pattern weight, the length of the leader, your retrieve speed, which is usually slow or else the fly will start to climb up through the water. Um, and, uh, and Those kind of variables you're playing with all the time, but uh, if I had three lines for stillwater fishing, you know, we're not, uh, it would be a floating line, um, it would be something in the clear intermediate line that sinks at around an inch and a half, two inches per second, and then something fast, maybe a type three or a type five that sinks at five, three to five inches per second, somewhere in there, and that would cover a lot of the. And then you could, they're kind of like golf clubs, and then you can, you know, I'm actually a horrible golfer, but. <laughs> Um, me too but you can people have told me who are much better than me that you can navigate your way around a course with you know a minimum suite of clubs but there are certain advantages to having that you know that right iron that right wood for that specific situation that's kind of how fly lines are so sort of cover your bases with those three and then fill in the blanks as you're you know, personal needs, wants, the situations you face, and, and most importantly, whoever controls your, your financial ways and means, right? Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> That's the struggle and the great thing about fly fishing is yes. there's always a better new line, new rod. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: New boat, right? New boat. Oh, um, yeah. Um, or boats. <laughs> boats. Before we get into the boats, I want to talk about the leader. So sure. let's just say for this example we're using a floating line, we're on a lake um, somewhere, you know, let's say in the mountains, a uh, fairly medium-sized lake. What sort of leader with a floating line? Is this pretty much where you're doing the um, kind of indicator sort of thing? Or what would you be doing?
0: Well, the indica- if we look at indicators, that's the most complex leader system I use because the most critical part of, a leader se- of an indicator setup um, in regards to leaders is making sure between your indicator and your fly or flies um, is level. So it sinks perfectly straight down and uh, level. If you use a standard nine or a 12 foot leader, um, most of those leaders are designed in the trout realm for, you know, presenting to rising fish. So half of that leader is typically butt section to facilitate a, a you know, a, a good transfer of casting energy and a delicate presentation. So you don't spook that rising fish. If you use that same leader in an indicator setup, because of the differing thickness along majority of its length, it sinks at different rates along its length. So even though you know you might have, you might be set for to fish your flies eight feet down, uh, because of that differing thickness, although you're set for eight feet, your flies aren't actually reaching eight feet. And um, so the leader setup I use, I, I'm um, you know I'm been a number of years now, I've been a, a Rio ambassador. So I use they have an indicator leader that it is it's it does say tapered on there. But the butt section is only about three feet long, and then after that, it's um, level leader. So, what the advantage of that is, is because we're using these thin level leaders, uh, multiple flies, sometimes swivels. We've got an indicator on there. There's lots of points of contact on that leader. It's a tangle prone system. You got to be, you know, you don't want to be, you know, punch in line. You don't want to be making multiple false casts. The, the good thing about indicator fishing is we fish generally very short casts you know my my general rule is the deeper you're fishing below your indicator the closer you keep that indicator to you so you you don't miss any of the subtle takes um you know so you know if i was fishing 18 feet below the indicator for example i might only have a rod length or rod rod length and a half outside the indicator right because as long as you're not wherever you're fishing from, a boat or a pontoon boat, you're not having a party up there and jumping around, um, You're not. the fish is not going to really be looking up through 18, 19 feet of water and, and doing all that math. As long as you're sort of quiet in their world, um, they'll respond and come, come close. Um, so most of the times we're using a roll cast. So this leader is, um, you know, 10 feet long, regardless of the breaking strain out of the package. Um, I like the little butt section in between the... An, that's where I position the indicator is right on the junction of where this leader transitions from the butt section to that level section. So that keeps your indicator close to your fly line, which aids casting. You never want to get a an indicator 10 feet away from the end of your fly line. It just unbalances the whole system and it's awkward to cast. You tend to overpower, which causes, you know, one of the contributing factors to a tailing loop and just, you know, causes, you know, frustrations and tangles and things like that. Um, And then that stiff butt section or that thicker butt section rather between the fly line and your indicator gives a little bit of backbone to the whole system for casting Um, because it's nylon it floats you know you can use the same system I know a lot of dedicated indicator fishermen use level leaders right from the fly line all the way through and it's certainly a good system to use. Uh, but it's more tangle prone, so if you're not used to that system, it's um, you know that butt section is going to help you. Most of the times, we're using l- level fluorocarbon, maybe eight pound, ten pound level leader all the way through. Um, that's going to when you sit when that's sitting on the surface, it's going to go below the surface, and when fish are taking very subtle, such as small bugs like again um, th- that can cause a little bit of delay as you try to get that up through the water. Maybe it's hanging three to four inches down, but it still can put enough drag or delay on things. That, it may cause, you know, misfish, fish. And, and another is just a practical side of it is when you, if you're using a loop-to-loop connection, um, a narrow diameter material, there's a risk it'll cut into the fly line and damage it. So you've got a in, relatively inexpensive component in screwing up a 75 to $100 fly line, right, as it cuts into the coating, waterlogs the tip and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, and then from there, if I, you know, that, that gives me about 7 feet of working depth, the way that comes out of the package. So if I need to uh, fish deeper, I simply have to add tippet equal or um, lesser diameter tippet to the end of that leader, then typically to a swivel and then a final two-foot section um, down to the fly. Um, You always want to keep your swivel and flies reasonably close to each other. Two feet sort of my standard working. So what I do is, let's say I want to fish 15 feet, and this is as complex as I ever get with my leader's, So I've got seven feet out of the package that I can, that that leader, when I set that indicator, it's going to hang straight down below. And then I've got my final section is two feet. So seven and two is nine. And I want to get to 15 feet down. The difference between nine and 15 is six. So I want to add six feet of fluorocarbon typically between the indicator leader and that swivel. And that's what I call the adjustment zone. That's where I'll ebb and flow the leader length. So if I need to go deeper, I would add leader in that area. If I need to go shallower, I would remove a portion of it or all of it, depending on how shallow I want to go, because you only ever want to fish a, an indicator leader as, as long as is necessary. You don't want to be you know fishing 20 feet a leader when seven feet will do, right? Because, you know, the more you have them, the more tangle prone it, it can become.
1: Gotcha. And when you're fishing this, are you always thinking – well, I guess you've got balanced leeches, you've got crime. I mean, What mm-hmm. What flies are you thinking of when you're with this setup?
0: Well, you know, I think when we first started, you know, because the beauty of an indicator presentation on lakes is it controls the two elements I mentioned earlier that or helps control the two elements most people struggle with when they come to a lake is getting your fly at the right depth and keeping it there. And that's simply governed by the distance between your indicator and fly or flies. So you've got that depth thing, your flies, the fish are feeding, you suspect at eight feet down and 10 feet of water. Um, your fly is at eight feet right the way through your presentation from when that fly sinks and settles to when you choose to bring it back and cast it again. And the retrieve speed, because you can just let it sit and let the wave action, uh um, you know, move that indicator on the surface that transmits down the leader to the flies and jigs them very seductively. Um, or you can do a hand twist, you can do a strip, uh, you can cast it upwind in light winds and just let the wind drift it back to you. There's lots of different ways you can move the fly. So it controls those two elements. So it's Plus, i got to admit, it's just plain old fun to watch that little indicator get pulled under the water, right? It's like it a kid again. It's, it's, it's very addictive. Um, once you've, I've had, you know, ardent... Uh, streamer fishermen from rivers and streams. And they're usually, I always tease them, they're a little hard to uh, get them to, you know, the nuances of still water because it's such a, compared to that, the pace is so much uh, more relaxed and slower, right? They're used to, you know, stripping aggressively, walking, casting, wading, mending, stripping, casting. They're always in, in motion. So to ask them to, you know, sort of cast this out and give it a good 20, 30 seconds for everything to settle under the indicator and to just, let it sit or just creep it back and little one inch pulls just about kills them. So <laughs>
1: there you go. <laughs>
0: yeah, we, we have some good fun Patience. teasing each other because we're at one end of the spectrum to the other. And I like stripping streamers as much as anybody else. So, that's right. um, but, uh, yeah, so it controls those two elements. So that's, that's why it's, it's such an, an important, uh, and just a, a great setup for legs.
1: Are you going to use these for, uh, this setup for other species or is it mainly focused on trout?
0: Yeah, and we fish. You know, that's a good question. I didn't quite answer the first one. We it was originally started for corymides because they fish can really get fixated and focused on a set depth, and and that's where they feed at. It's just efficient for them to do that. So, again, you could be in fifteen feet of water, and those those pupa are suspending two feet off the bottom. So. You know, the fish are only going to feed two feet off the bottom. So an indicator setup allows you to do that. So that's what we started with was fishing coronamids and coronamid larva uh, right near the bottom. And then other things. I think uh, the next thing we started fishing more was leeches under there. And I often get asked, you know, how did I start fishing leeches under there? And I'd like to say it was years of research and graphs and charts and spreadsheets. And, but it was my son, Brandon, when he was about seven or eight, we were fishing and we were fishing chironomids and doing okay, and he asked to make a fly change. And, um, you know, I said, okay, pick pick a fly. And I gave him my coronamid box, and he says, no, no, I want to fish this. And it was this bead-headed, you know, just a simple leech marabou tail, crystal chenille body, a bead head on the end of it. No, I want to fish this. And I'm like, no, we don't fish those under indicators. We only fish chironomids. And so if you're a parent you know, <laughs> arguing with an 8-year-old and losing, yeah. and like any good parent, I just collapsed and caved in, whatever, just… Put yep. this on and throw it out there, right? <laughs> and that thing sat for about 20 seconds under the indicator. Boom, that indicator went under so hard. And I think, boy, trout are stupid. They'll eat anything, right? And then drag it in and, and flopped it back out there again. And this happened like three or four times in a row. And all of a sudden, I'm like, all right, well, maybe we're on to something here. So ever since that point, um, I've been using, you know, leeches under indicator and now balance flies. But now we fish scuds, minnows, um, Anything a trout eats, you can arguably present it under an indicator and do very, very well with it. There you go. And so we also use it other species. Like I've got friends back east um, that use it to, you know, fish balance minnows and things like that for smallmouth bass and just do really well with it. I use it in the summer months when our local lakes get too warm for trout. I chase walleye on the fly um and that's one of the ways we do it we fish under an indicator it's basically a slip bobber system so you would put a, a balanced minnow or a balanced leech because walleye eat leeches and minnows they even eat i've even caught walleye on our local lakes they, they eat scuds so i've had scuds on droppers and caught walleye on scuds which was i was quite happy with myself when that happened it's not a it doesn't happen a lot but it's you know you do it once and you sort of yes <laughs> they will eat these things because biologists have told me you know they eat a lot of scuds in these lakes. So. So other species, it's a presentation method that spans both species and all the food sources. So very versatile.
1: And now let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. In today's world of mass-produced products, Stonefly Nets has reclaimed the tradition of handcrafted care with their custom wood landing nets. Stonefly starts the design process by selecting wood for the handle based on a number of key factors, including grain pattern and depth. But they don't stop there. This piece of art is accentuated by strips of hardwood that complement and accentuate the handcrafted handle. To be honest, I have never been a huge net guy, mainly because I didn't feel like my uh, old collapsible net was easiest to use and was not easy on the eye, if you know what I mean. The Stonefly uh, net not only looks beautiful, but has high-quality netting that is easy on the fish and will last for years to come. Stonefly's goal is to create a unique custom classic wood net that's second to none and can be customized for a little extra touch. When Ethan designs a custom net, it's his hope that others will create amazing lasting memories for years to come. Please head over to wetflyswing.com stonefly to get your custom net now. That's wetflyswing.com stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y to get started right now. Okay. Let's get back to the show. So with the floating line, so that's awesome because that is a, yep. a technique. I mean, how often, if you just had a floating line, are you pretty much using that a majority of the time, or what Or what else would you be using with the floating line?
0: Well, like I said, you can do some dries and emergers. Of course, it's always great when you get fish up on top and feeding. Um, most of the time, unfortunately, that doesn't happen in uh, some many of the stock lakes I fish because they generally stock the fish in a small size. So they just, you know, by the time they... Um, reach catchable size for us they have just learned to that it's more safe and efficient to feed near the bottom and you know won't come up through 10 12 feet of water or eight feet of water to or even deeper um to feed on the surface but there are certain lakes and certain scenarios um, i was doing a school at corbett lake lodge in british columbia this this fall and uh fish were coming up and eating. they're very surface orientated in that lake so um you know there's terrestrials there's, chronomids, there's caddis, there's damsels, there's a great calabatus mayfly population. So those fish have just become used to, to feeding on top. Plus, um, they're stocked at a, around two pounds. So um, I, I think when a fish is stocked at that two pound average, you know, it's for the first, basically it's a two-year-old fish almost. Um, it's just used to things, you know, lunch has always rained in from above in the form of trout food and they just used to looking up. So they're, they're trained to do that yet. You go down, there's a lake just down the road that rarely will a fish come up to the surface and it's all subsurface presentation. So you've always got to have that adaptability. So a floating line gives you that. So you've got that. You can fish with a strike indicator. And then the, the the other method we use is the long leader or naked technique. We we christen it because there's no indicator on the leader. And this is how I first learned to fish chironomids because indicators weren't around 30, 35 or more years ago. It's amazing how time flies. Mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately um but we used to fish and i still do is these long leader techniques where we're fishing um you know 15 18 20 25 foot leaders and we're just literally casting downwind um, allowing that fly to sink a good 30 seconds minimum um and just creepy crawling you know that fly back um watching the fly lines for signs of a take or or the take is (laughs) it's kind of like a wet fly swing to (laughs) Mm. Mm, (laughs) little plug there. (laughs) Um, but, uh, um, you know, it's just a, and the take is very addictive. It's very technical. Um, you know, you're playing with leader length, pattern weight, retrieve speed, and sync time. So all these four variables you have to get just right. And that's why chronoman fishing for many years was such a tough discipline to learn because the strike indicator just you know, control two of those elements right off the bat, right? You retrieve speed, again, you retrieve speed and uh, your presentation depth. So it's just, uh, it's a very fun method. I love to do it whenever possible. Um, But uh, it's a a little more of a finesse technique and and it takes a little bit longer to master. You've really got to You know, slow the retrieves down. Let things sink. It's just really a very mellow, slow way to fish a lake. But when they're on it, it is deadly effective. It's a people say it's so slow and boring. I said, "So fish a cast. What's
1: boring?" Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's pretty (laughs) good.
1: Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay. So, and and those fish um, when you're fishing. I'm just thinking again, I mean, so you're, you, as far as depth, I mean, you're catching fish in some deep water. What is the deepest uh, water you're fishing typically uh, on
0: depth? Depends on species. You know, I've done lake trout. I've fished them down 60, 70 feet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Again, a little, takes a little bit of, you know, I've done that at a a few um, lodges I visited or or filmed through through the new fly fisher. I do some filming for them. And with lake trout like that, you're obviously using a fast sinking line, something that sinks in at six to seven inches per second. Um, you know, they often suspend, you might be at 200 feet of water and they're 75 to 80 feet down. Um, so we would, on a you know, breed, uh, wind is a factor. So if, if the wind is light and you're working with someone who can control the boat, you're going to cast down wind, a comfortable cast, And then you're going to have the rest of the line stripped off your reel. And you're basically going to stack mend it right on top of the line you cast and just allow that line to sink way down. You remember the fly line's 90 feet long. So you're going to almost stack it all the way to the backing. And then once it sinks near vertical or vertical, you know, if the drift, you know, the thing that get works against you in that kind of technique is the drift of the boat and the wind. If it's too fast, you just can't get the fly down. You know, a fly doesn't sink as fast as a lead jig or something like that or a big spoon. Um, even at seven inches per second, it takes a little bit of time to get down there, you know, because you're sinking it just over a foot per second, right? So if you're trying to get down 40 feet, that's f- just over 40 seconds, which, yeah. you know, it seems right. like an eternity a for a lot perfect world, of yeah. Yeah, so you got to wait for that to sink vertically, and then once it's down, then it's just aggressive two-foot strips because you're you're fishing streamers, you're fishing clousers and, and big streamers for those lake trout, and they just you know they're every bit as aggressive as a pike. So, um, but for trout, most of the times we're trying to target, I would say water twenty feet deep or less, um, for two reasons. Um, first of all, just from a presentation perspective, there's lots of different things you can do: sinking lines, strike indicators, long leader tactics. Um, you know, different kind of flies flies, and fly lines can come into it. And also that's where, on most lakes, that's where the extent of sunlight penetration is, which stimulates plant growth through photosynthesis, which provides habitat for food. That's the, I would say, that's the Costco, the Walmart, the superstore of the underwater world. That's where trout go to find food, and, and that's where you want to be. So those shallow shoal areas that, you know, a shoal by definition is, is any portion of the lake that sunlight actually strikes the bottom because right, sunlight does have an impact in deeper water as well, but it, only, you know, it can only penetrate so far you know, depending on water clarity. The clearer it is, the, you know, it might get down 25, 30, 40 lakes like Lake Tahoe. I think the thermoclinal form as deep as 50 feet down with the extent of that sunlight penetration. In a murky lake, it might only be 20 feet down because all the suspended matter you know, limits the penetration of the sun's energy.
1: Gotcha. So, yeah, and it, obviously this all depends. I mean, with clear lake versus cloudy lake, and, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. variation. We're not getting into everything, but I, I'm kind no. of touching on just that. Yeah. You know, again, we're kind of thinking floating lines. Maybe we're thinking about rainbow, and maybe we're thinking about a clear lake. And in that yeah. situation, you might be able to fish are, are feeding potentially in 10 to 20 feet of water because, yep. you're yeah, you're getting, and then you're yep. getting a lot of fish, potentially as many fish in the deep water yeah. as the shallow. Yeah. Yeah,
0: because you can catch, you know, you know, will feed wherever they want to feed. But I'd say the majority of their feeding is is shallow on on the food sources. You know, that's where the food is. But there are times, you know, we've, you know, chironomid's quite capable of, emer- you know, they're up to 200 feet of depth or more, I think. You know, you can find chronomid populations establishing themselves. And, and there are techniques we use when we've had emergencies where trout are taking chironomids in 30, 35 feet of water, uh, getting down, or they'll go off and, and suspend in the warmer months out there because there's you know, at the deeper you you know, right at the edge of the sunlight penetration where that thermocline forms, which is a, a rapid change in depth over a short, that's where they'll sit because that's where the, the oxygen is. So out there there's lots of these little tiny things called zooplankton um, that used to frustrate us for years, but now um, thanks to some English flies and techniques with flies like a booby or particularly a blob. Um, we can imitate uh, the color of the zooplankton and uh, and or clusters of it, and we actually fish bead-headed blobs below indicators, static, like you'd fish um pupa, and it's very, very effective when they're um, when they're feeding on zooplankton, right? Which was something in the past. You know, you're talking about so I don't tie size 96 flies. I joke. So uh, <laughs> you know, when you when you you know discovered fish were feeding on zooplankton, you know, using a careful use of a throat pump, you'd be like. Shoulders are dropping, like, oh, great, right? Well, nowadays yeah. we get, yes, <laughs> we yeah, get to fish blobs. We can handle this. So,
1: there you go. And the blobs, yeah. and we talked about the booby with uh Brian Chan. Yes, it was, uh, yeah. we had a good laugh about that, but he dug into that. Uh, yeah. on that, episode. yeah, I have
0: a whole chapter on attractor fishing because, oh, yeah, nice. in the book because fish don't always take our everybody thinks trout take our or fish in general take our flies out of a feeding response, but that's not always the case. They can you can trigger a reaction from them. Um, by you know appealing to their naturally aggressive nature um territorial you come into their space um, or curiosity they're you know a trout's mouth is its hands and particularly freshly stocked fish you know they all of a sudden they're dumped into a new environment and they've got to learn how to feed they didn't you know nobody gave them a manual and what the nobody gave them a hatch chart so somebody a friend of mine said they're like two-year-olds everything's in their mouth so um (laughs) they're samplers right and that's all we want is to Put the fly in your
1: mouth and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with the reasons why after. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. This is great. No, yep. I've been thinking, uh, you know, just again about the chapters and we've been touched on a lot of this. So let's take it back to there again. So we talked sure. about, you know, rods, reels, I guess, uh, chapter two was kind of accessories. Now chapter three, let, let's just touch briefly on boats. So I know yeah. there's a lot of different boats you could use, um, you know, float tubes, all sorts of things. But if yeah. you're going to a lake, maybe you could slide a boat in, um, maybe, maybe not a gigantic boat, but something pretty easy. Yep. What's the best boat?
0: oh god how long's a piece of string that's a tough question uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's personal preference budget um yeah you know like you said this float let's tubes. say no budget Let, let's no say no budget, bu- budget. Oh, wow. no budget yeah oh, trailered boat with all the toys um yeah you know I, I i do a lot of instruction and guiding um so i like to fish out of a boat because i have my clients right there with me um, right. I certainly enjoy pontoon boats and float tubes. Um, in fact, when I was first starting out still water fly fishing for my budget, a float tube was perfect because it was inexpensive. I could deflate it and throw it in the car, uh, inflate it at the lake. Um, you know, and, and, I was fishing, right. Whereas a boat was an investment, um, yeah. cause it's not only you buy the boat then you got to buy the motors, whether oh, right. Just know, as electric as the boat, or right? gas, the trailer, if you're going to trailer them, uh, right. Seats and floorboards and anchor systems, yeah. um, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's it. That's a definite commitment. Of course, with trailers comes things like trailer bearings and all the things that water doesn't like. Um, it, you know, there's a maintenance factor to that. But there's also, you know, the, with a boat you can go any, you know, pretty well go anywhere. You can handle a lot more larger lakes. You can handle a little more inclement weather and chop and things like that. Um, but um, you know, if I could get uh, generally a small uh you know, we used to call a car a car topper or a john boat you know in that 12 foot range aluminum boat lightweight you can manhandle it around or just person handle it around um you know throw throw your gear in it and off you go
1: like uh, is a trolling motor a lot of times good enough or do you should you have some sort of a you know a full a bigger like a gas or whatever
0: it depends um you Know and a lot of times it's regulation bound. A uh, number of the, the lakes I fish where I am in Alberta, a lot of them, the, the trout lakes, the quality trout lakes, are electric motors only. They're small, um, so that's what you use. Um, you know, electric motors are you know, you got that heavy battery, and now you got these new lithium batteries that weigh next to nothing, but they're spendy, um, but they last longer. Um, and and uh, so uh, you know, you just throw that in the back and you're gone. Whereas an outboard again is, you know, I've, I've got uh, two boats that i fish out of i've got a 14 foot marlin that i use for most that's a flat bottom john boat style that i use for most of my small lakes fishing but i also have a 17 foot um, g3 with a 40 horsepower on the back of it so that's bigger waters um so you again you're trying to tool, choose the right tool for the job you know you would i wouldn't put that big 17 foot in a little pond um, um versus vice versa i probably wouldn't take a float tube out on a you know, a lake that's 20 miles long and five miles wide either. Just if, you, if the weather comes up on you, you can be, um, I don't think you'll, you know, it's pretty hard to flip a, flip one of those things, but you'll just be blown in the wrong direction.
1: And, yeah. It'll you know, take you forever yeah. to get home. Right? Yeah, that's, I, I remember those days when, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're at the lake and you get blown across, you're fishing all day. They're like, holy cow. They By mid, midday, the winds come up and you're like, man, this is going to be impossible.
0: Yeah. Well, you get paddling and focused on what you're doing, and then all of a sudden you got to go home. It's like oh, and you—it's like me when I fish a river, and I love to river fish. It's, I always seem to wade walk downstream, and at the end of the day when you're tired and it's time to go, it's like I got to slog five miles upstream now, right? Crossing the river, and you know while you were fishing, you were so focused on that run or that next run looks pretty good, or I saw a fish down there, and you're so focused on it, you're kind of not paying attention that you're wandering further and further away from your vehicle, right? That's it. That's it.
1: No, this yeah. is good. So, so I, I guess, uh, you know, if I had to say, I'd say it'd be nice to have a little John boat for a nice mm-hmm. little, to, you know, add that to your repertoire yep. or whatever, you know, kind of get into smaller areas. So let's keep this going on, on the chat. So we got boats. What, what was chapter four in your book? Uh,
0: chapter four was, uh, just double check. I know it's should leaders, knots and droppers. So we talked about the leader setups, uh, for indicators. Um, I also talk, I talk a lot about droppers and different dropper setups, multiple flies, um, and not every place allows it. Like you mentioned, Brian was on there. In British Columbia, they're only allowed to use single fly there, but you can fish two rods if you're in a boat by yourself, right? So, and I know in other states like Oregon and California, you can fish, I believe it's an extra rod if you purchase an extra license. Um, you might know more about that, um, but I like fishing droppers. I like fishing multiple flies. Um, because obviously you can fish different sizes, different colors. Perhaps the most important thing, you're fishing different depths. As I mentioned, depth is one of the, you know, you're trying to find out what, you know, where vertically in the lake the trout are fishing. Uh, multiple flies allow you to explore in those kind of waters uh, faster and more efficiently than a single fly setup. And they add weight, you know, so windy conditions. All right. Two, two bead heads weigh more than one. Um, there you go. So, uh, get down, and it's again. There's a, there's a fun factor to it. Right? When you catch a fish, what what fly did it take?
1: Yeah. Do you find um, that tungsten beads are, are, are better than the regular beads, or is that does that matter that much? <laughs>
0: um, I use tungsten beads on balance flies and and uh, jig flies because that's you know part of their component. But for the most part, my chronomids and mayflies and damsels, anything that I use a bead head on. Is going to be brass because tungsten sinks so fast that, uh, you know, when you're fishing non-indicator techniques, um, and you're trying to fish slowly, that tungsten oh, simply, too much. the sink rate of the tungsten overpowers your retrieve. So the fly, you, so, um, I use brass most of the time, you know.
1: There you go. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so that, so that's drop. And again, like I said at the start, we're not going to dig fully. If somebody wants to go deep, they'll have to uh, grab your book. Yeah. But uh, uh, so and let's go. So chapter five. What what was that again?
0: How lakes work, which is prob- a really important chapter because you know people always want to know. A lot of questions I get asked. I'm, I'm at a new lake. Where do I go? Do I go shallow? Do I go deep? And it's such a subjective question. And this was a chapter Brian helped me with um he was gracious enough to you know with his experience as a fisheries biologist um when i wrote the chapter this was actually the first one i had to submit to the to the publisher to prove i was actually able to write um and uh, so brian had vetted that chapter for me and um, you know a few minor changes but overall i i got it right and uh, but this is understanding the seasons of a lake how lakes um, you know what happens in the lake during winter and these are shallow productive lakes and then what happens in the spring and turnover and then things like spring kill summer kill winter kill um, and, and the reason it's important to understand because although we call them still waters, they're anything but still um, those lakes are always in a state of, of flux it's maybe not as obvious or you know as a river you know with the with the speed of the moving water that kind of thing Um, But it's important because, you know, early spring, right after ice off, trout will generally be shallow because that's where the oxygen is, the way the lake stratifies during the winter months. And then the lake becomes the same temperature and gets stirred up by wind and turns over. And then that disperses the trout. There's now oxygen content, you know, throughout most of the lake. So they can move around. And and, and a lot of it's all to do with oxygen content because the fish can't breathe properly or function properly. It's like you and I, the analogy I use, if you and I ran the Boston Marathon and I actually survived without, you know, an ambulance or something, um, <laughs> um, and I come running across the finish line and somebody jams a bacon cheeseburger in my face and <laughs> says, have it a bite. I am not interested in eating. No. I'm interested in getting my body back in balance and breathing and all those kind of things. Right. So again, maybe a little bit of an uh, abstract analogy, but just if the trout aren't comfortable with their breathing habits, uh, you know, and finding oxygen to their to their liking, oxygen content to their liking, I don't think they're going to be much interested in feeding. They're going to be struggling. So, again, just understanding how lakes work because where you fish in the early spring versus late spring, summer, fall, late fall, affects, you know, location, 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 right? So where you fished in the early spring and had really good fishing in water 10 feet deep or less, if you go try that in the middle of summer, those shallows are just too warm. They don't hold the oxygen. There's not a fish around, right? So... It's important. People go, oh, this is kind of like science. It's boring, (laughs) Um, but it's such a critical part of understanding where trout go in lakes and and put, you know, just putting yourself in the right spot, right?
1: Exactly. And knowing when. Yeah. So if you, if you go back to that lake, some medium sized mountain lake, uh, it's say the fall, you know, let's just say it's right now. Let's just say, I mean, we're. Let's see, what are we at here? We're kind of in November. Let's just say it's December, depending on where you're at. Again, you yeah, might have yeah. snow in some places. But I mean, are you, what would you say? Do you cover that? I mean, are there places where you're actually covering where it might be ice around and things like that? Or are you focused more in the summer?
0: Well, my neck of the woods, my, my season, I think, is done. Um, oh, we're yeah. Now, you know, we're now getting sub-zero temperatures at night. I was hoping to maybe sneak out one more time this week, but it's we're having overnight lows in some areas of minus seven or eight centigrade, which is cold. Um, I don't know what the I don't know what the Fahrenheit equivalent of that is. I'm good above zero, but it's cold, and so ice is forming. When it gets below zero, it's ice forms, and that just locks the lake up. So we're pretty well done until April, May
1: until April, until,
0: yeah, until things lock up.
1: So when you're, when you're writing this book, um, are you thinking about like a kind of an avatar? <clears throat> because there's obviously people that are in the South that are probably reading it too. How yep. do you do that?
0: Well, you just sort of, again, it's, you, you do talk about specifics and then you kind of be general at times when you can. You know, um, lakes that don't, and that's, a, that's an important factor because lakes that don't ice over only have one turnover event uh, per season. And that's in, in the summer. Uh, sorry, the fall. Um, Because the lake only stratifies in the summer months, because the sun warms the upper layers and causes it to stratify. Because one of the primary principles of water is when it's at differing temperatures, it won't mix, right? It will stay apart. Um, And and so, again, water has some pretty unique properties. Like, it's most dense in its liquid state. Just about everything else on our planet is most dense when it's in its solid state. All right, so... Um, which is kind of important because if water was most dense in its solid state, I don't think life on this planet would, would work. Um, so um, so it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's got some unique properties. That, that that's a interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah no, it's, that's, a, that's definitely one of those chapters that I think you got to probably <clears throat> read your book and then also probably read a couple more books right, yeah. to get.
0: <laughs> yeah, I read it a couple of times. And there's some great resources on places like YouTube as well. Um, that, uh, you can, you know, this, there's, there's a university of Oregon, I think has a, you know, the whole turnover thing and it's a fast, it's a long video to watch. It's like 15 minutes or so, which is long, probably by YouTube standards. Um, but he takes an aquarium and just shows the impact and cooling it and adding water, wa- warmer water and, and using a hairdryer to simulate wind and putting ice in and he uses dyes. And you can really see how everything separates and, you know, stratifies and things like this to understand how lakes work. Right. And, and, and the trout, like all of us were slaves to our environment. Yep. No, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll leave that. And as we look at this now, we're, I look at the time we have left, I think we'll, yep. we'll touch on a few highlights that I'm interested in and, and we did touch on the, um, you know, floating lines a little bit on some of this stuff, but let, let's just go into the entomology piece and just talk briefly about this. What, um, obviously you hear a lot about image you hear a lot about uh, different species. If you're thinking, bring it back to that uh, floating line again. Um, what do you, what are we thinking about for entomology? Are there like just a bunch of insects or is there a oh, good way we could focus this?
0: Well, that's one of the, the primary draws to still water fishing. If you like matching the hatch, still waters are a hatch matchers delight there are so many different food sources available in lakes you know unlike rivers some lakes are known for better bugs of this or better bugs of that but you know we've got we talked about chronomids there's um and chronomids are the egg uh, not the eggs. sorry those we don't imitate eggs chronomids uh larva the pupa even to some degrees the adult we've got um leeches dragonflies damselflies, flies flies Mayflies, although not to the same extent that we have them in rivers and streams as, you know, less um, species available in lakes, but uh, usually in lakes where they occur, they occur in, in large numbers. Uh, fish, crayfish, snails, zooplankton, hmm. which we mentioned. Yeah, tons. Um Tons of food sources, um, terrestrials, things like that. All those things are in there. And, uh, and again, like with Brian helping me out, uh, I had Rick Haifley who's who um, oh, you yeah. might have had Rick on before. Yeah, we've he's had a, him on. Yeah, he's a good friend and uh, you know, a former aquatic entomologist and fly fisher, a great combination. So he reviewed that chapter for me as well. So again, just want to make sure the sciencey y stuff um, was accurate.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, Rick. Yeah. I'll put a link to that one yeah. as well. He's um great guy. It's really interesting. We've talked about this before, but the fact that Rick is a fisherman and an entomologist, and, 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 and you tend to not find a lot of those people. Do you no. find like there's not another? I mean, because again, he's. I mean, why? Why do you think that is? Is that just because it's uh, it's a hard? I don't know why. You think there would be a, a couple hundred of Rick Cafley type of people out there, but there's not.
0: And it's also fisheries biologists and things like that. Cause a lot of times I talk to them and maybe it's, I deal with these things all day long in my day job. I really don't want to go out and play with them on weekends. Right. Um, I need a break, um, or they, they, you know, they are obviously linked to the environment, but they chose a different, you know, whether it's a different, uh, a hobby or something to do with the environment. But, uh, yeah, it's, it is pretty rare to, to have that. I've, I've had the good fortune of fishing with Rick. We fished the Missouri River in Montana. Oh, wow. I think he and I had more fun seining rivers and looking at bugs and fishing some days, right? So <laughs> <laughs> nice. people must have thought we were really just two weirdos. <laughs> totally, totally
1: nice. Yeah. That's a good no Rick's good. He's uh mm-hmm. he's a funny guy and obviously he's yep. uh, I'm not sure if he's still playing in a band, but he used to be in a uh a, I think a, he still like, dabbles in yeah, it. He's still got his it. drum
0: set. I, I visited his house once when he lived uh, just south of Portland in Astoria, I think it was. Um and he had a drum set in his uh set up in this one of his rooms. <laughs> I was yep. quite impressed. That's it's it. quite the, it's quite the
1: drum set. Oh nice, nice, yeah. I haven't seen that. That's cool. <laughs> um so l- let's go into the um the retrieve. You have a chapter on retrieves? Yes, I do. What what do we need? uh, Give us a quick little snippet. What do we need to know about retrieves? There must be just a lot of a lot of diversity there.
0: Yeah, there's different kinds of retrieves. We talk about you know the hand twist, the strip, uh, the roly poly, uh, pinch strip, uh, and and basically with any retrieve you're playing with four variables: the length of the pull, how long you how the distance you pull the fly line, uh, the speed of that pull. Um, the cadence, sort of the tempo, you know, the retrieve rhythm you use, and then the pauses because just about every food source moves a little bit and then takes a break. It moves a little bit, takes a break. And quite often those pauses are the most important element because the trout is attracted to the fly by the movement generally because they're big eyes, they're sight feeders. And then, of course, they, they like what they see and then that fly stops and then they can get it. Um, and we also talk about uh, the hang, which is arguably the most single, most Way you can improve your catch rate. And the hang is literally where at the end of every retrieve, we pause or hang the flies, um, you know, for a period of time before casting again. Because a lot of times, trout will latch onto your fly during the retrieve and they're interested and not committed. And then you go to raise the rod to cast again. And that causes the fly to rise up and, and increase speed. And that's sort of the trigger that flips the switch in them to go kill it. And uh, you pull it out of the water, right? When they want to get it. So you'll get a Maybe you'll get a grab, but you miss it. Or, a, you know, there's a boil at the surface or a flash of silver or whatever. So what you do with the hang is as you're going to go in, you almost go like into a roll cast with a slow rod raise and you're gathering line. And you literally look at the, watch the fly just sitting below the surface to see if anything's following it and behind it. And it's really exciting because if there is, you see the whole thing right in front of you, right? And there, And you do a slow rod raise, a fast rod raise, hang it for five seconds, 10. I I remember hanging a fly once on Henry's Lake in Idaho for a good 20, 25 seconds before a rainbow came up out of the depths and took it. Um, So it it just, those are fish you would never catch because you pulled the fly away from them and started casting again. Um, So um, we talk about that. That's a really important part of uh, any, any presentations, all those, all those kind of things.
1: There's a lot to it, yeah. And, and how do you figure out, so on that hang, and it's interesting because I remember we had a uh, uh, way back in Episode 72, Rachel Finn talked about the hang, which is more like, her, her hang was like, you know, it's all about the hang. It's all about more yep. like getting in the flow of, you know, kind of uh, whatever that flow is mm-hmm. of your fishing. But this hang, I mean, how would you know? I mean, how do you know the retrieves, the hang, how long? Is that just you just try everything? Yeah, or?
0: you experiment generally it's for me water temperature like most insects or food sources you know they they have similar motion patterns they move a little bit they stop they move a little bit they stop they change direction they stop um you know and and obviously the smaller it is it's just moving slower because the poor little thing can't go as fast as a little bait fish or whatever um but uh, a lot of times it's water temperature driven so generally when the water temperatures are cool that influences a trout's activity rate it's metabolism um so you generally gotta fish things slower. Um, if the water temperature is sort of right in their wheelhouse. And for me, I use 50 to 65 Fahrenheit, sort of my, I call it the happy zone, where most, you know, every trout's got its own specific little uh, preferred temperature range it's most active in, but that usually covers the lion's share of them. Um, you know, and and on what they're eating too, if they're chasing Minnows and things like that, you're going to fish a little more aggressively. You're going to match sort of the attitude of the fish at that moment. But most times, again, right back to the beginning, most people don't move their flies slow enough because most food sources, they don't have rocket packs strapped to them. Just start slow. Again, back to the indicator, that's why that works so well because you can just just let it hang and let the wave action animate the fly for it.
1: There you go. Yeah, that's a great tip. So just start off. Maybe if you don't know, yeah, just start off as slow as possible, then slowly work faster.
0: Well, when I was learning to coronamid fish with that long, leader naked technique, the general analogy was retrieve as slow as you think you can go and then cut that in half again. Oh, wow. So that's, yeah, that's how slow. There you go.
1: And what would be your, so I guess maybe that's the answer. If you had to say your favorite uh, retrieve, and I know there's a lot of combinations, but it's just some sort of slow or, or what do you say? If if somebody asked you, you know, what is your favorite kind of most effective retrieve uh, combination?
0: Oh, that would be a hand twist, um, because the hand twist, figure eight, hand weave retrieve, it's got a number of names. Um, It's a busy retrieve in that you're moving your hands, but the fly isn't really moving that fast, but it keeps your your naturally impatient nature somewhat at bay. Um, And depending on the numbers of fingers you use to bring the fly in, the, the hand twist is basically you pinch the line, pull a little bit off, and then use your fingers to roll and catch a length of line and it's kind of this weaving hand weave retrieve that brings the fly in. And and even though your hands are moving, you're not really gathering that much line with each um, sort of movement in the retrieve. And you can also, you can grab it with three fingers. You can grab it with your ring finger. You can grab it with your middle finger. And again, that adjusts. And and sometimes you rotate between those. So it's it's a very versatile retrieve because you can do it very fast, you know, or you can do it medium paced, or you can do it very, very slow paced. Right, so it's a retrieve that has a wide range of applications when efficient
1: lakes. there you go okay perfect yeah. and uh, a couple we're gonna just skip through we talked a little bit about dries we're gonna skip over that we'll leave mm-hmm. sinking uh, maybe yeah. for the next one to dig into sure. sinking uh, flies and lines yeah. and things um just briefly give us a, a little attractor snippet from that what what um, you mentioned a few of the bugs are there is there kind of a few common ones that you should have on your box in case you're, you you want to hit the surface
0: yeah the most there's not really a, a you know, any fly can be an attractor if you're stripping it around at pace because that's one of the components of attractors. It's generally a more aggressive retrieve because, again, you're not always triggering a fish to eat the fly out of a feeding response. You're just, you know, probably some of us all experience you're going to move to a new spot and you reel your fly in at 100 miles an hour just to gather it in and pick it in and go move, and bam, you get a fish. And, you know, you might have been fishing the coronaman. Well, coronamans certainly don't move at, you know, the speed you can reel a fly line in. Um, and you just, that went right by a fish's face and it's like a dog, you know, I remember riding by this old grumpy dog when I was a kid on a bike, a thing would be sleeping on the driveway. I was on the bike. That dog was up and chasing me. It couldn't help itself, right? Yeah. Um, same kind of analogy. Um, so, but as far as flies go, you know, Brian mentioned. You know, he mentioned he talked about the booby. Um, that's a yeah. He did. Um, there's the blob, which is has no foam eyeballs on it. It's um, typically we fish them a lot with bead heads now or unweighted at all. And then we have the fab, which is a blob with a split foam tail. Um that was a fly that was born some of the English fisheries where booby in England where the booby originated from started to ban the the boobies because everybody was just fishing Uh, boobies and not fishing other things so kind of tradition based so they banned flies with foam in the front oh wow Uh, and i believe a scottish competitive team said well what if we put the foam in the back and i guess somebody went well scratch their head a bit well it's not in the front so i guess it's (laughs) legal and so this split foam tail so basically a fab stands for a foam arsed blob so it's it's a different action, like a booby kind of wobbles and shakes as you retrieve it, whereas a fab, because of the foam in the back end, as you strip it, it moves horizontally, you pause it, the back end pops up. So it's mm. kind of got this, I don't know, tails up motion going through the retrieve, which I like that fly. It's a very effective fly for me. It's one of my favorites to use in a washing line setup. We, a washing line setup, uh, for those who aren't familiar, is kind of a dry dropper system in reverse in that the buoyant fly is on the point, and then you mm. use that fly in conjunction with your sink rate of your line to hang other flies off droppers. So they hang like clothes off a washing line. Um, <laughs> and then you've got the mop has certainly made its impression in still waters There's a mm. an English fly called a watsit, or I tie a version of it, I call it jelly mop. And a watsit is a uh, English corn chip, I believe. And a mop finger that we use for the tail um, is very similar in look to a watsit crisp. So uh, that's where it gets its name from. And then, um, there's a fly called an apse worm uh, that's simply, it's almost like a chronomid larva. It's on an eight or ten hook with really long uh, super floss or stretch floss. Two, almost like antenna sticking out, two split tails. You can tie things off the side. This looks like a, a you know, spaghetti on a hook. <laughs> you just strip this thing around and all those legs jiggle and jangle around um, all over the place. And it's an effective attractor as well. And they're usually tied in loud colors, you know, fluorescence. Um, because fluorescents do stand out at depth. It's a color that uh, trout can see better. Um, you know, your hot pinks, hot oranges, sunburst oranges, and, and um, you know, other things like prawn and biscuit. Um, these are colors that, you know, again, this originated in England. They've got some unique color names for it. You know, biscuit's kind of this really washed out pink. So, mm-hmm. yeah, nice. It's, it's fun because the take, you're fishing them aggressively um, and the takes are hard, usually, you usually whack. They, they hit it pretty good. So that's pretty, it's closest thing, I guess, to, you know, ripping and stripping a, you know, six inch articulated streamer. Um, but it's something we do if all the imitative techniques don't work, then we start triggering grabs. You know, mm-hmm. you've tried everything matching the hatch and all that kind of philosophy. And now it's done. Uh, okay, let's make them eat and see if we can dredge a fish up by uh, stripping flies around.
1: That sounds amazing. Okay. All right, Phil. Well, uh, before we get out here, just had a couple of random ones. We're going to leave yep. all the other uh, specific stuff for folks to get your book. And remind us again, so uh, what's the um, what's the online store, the website URL for that?
0: Stillwaterflyfishingstore.com. Yeah. Phil and Brian Stillwater Fly Fishing Store. Yep. Yeah. That's it. And we can grab
1: a signed copy of, of this book that we've been talking about today.
0: Yeah. And there's other things for them to get there. My quick release indicators. We got our flies, lots of other things there for them to look around. It, it's still water specific.
1: Yeah. still water. So if we want to go deep into this, we can uh, check into that. And, and any other, you know, I always ask, I like to ask this question I can't remember what you said last time, but when you think about other resources out there, books, magazines, yep. online, we, we know Brian's a great resource.
0: Yes, he is. Fantastic.
1: Who else would you say? Is there anybody else out there you would recommend where the people can dig into some other stuff out there?
0: Well, I'd always go to YouTube. YouTube is a great place to go. I'm a bit of a visual learner. So I, I, you know, and I have myself have my own active YouTube channel with fly tying and fly fishing videos on there as well. So, um, just, Again, search my name in YouTube, Phil Rowley, and it'll, it'll pop up. Come over and subscribe. It helps. Um, but, um, you know, Denny Rickards is another. I'm sure you've had Denny on as well. Oh, yeah. Well. Yeah, Denny's been um, on, yeah. You know, he fishes a lot of suggestive flies. A little different, uh, you know, some of his strategy. I'm, I'm sort of this um, uh, collage of different. I'm influenced by lots of different people, and I, I have had, you know, learned things from people like Brian and Denny, and I have learned things from students who have, a day on the water's experience and they do something a little different because they have no preset notions or biases and it just i just made sense to do it that way and it's like wow that's pretty effective and you know i might be able to drill into it a little deeper and know the reasons why but i'm certainly not uh proud enough to go well, i'm going to use that next <laughs> you know i i actually had a student in one of my schools that was fishing dry flies I, Parachute atoms over 30, 40 feet of water on, on that lake I mentioned earlier, Corbett Lake that has this, and he was letting it sit and give it a strip, letting it sit, and he was pulling fish up, and they were eating that fry on the surface. Something you would never think to do, and I'm like, well, it's in the back mm-hmm. of my knowledge chest now, and I will certainly when I'm visiting that lake, give that method, you know. There you go. Consideration.
1: So you never know. Okay, great, and yeah. and last one before we get out of here, we talked to accessories at the start. Give us what would be your one go-to uh, accessory for still waters
0: oh i think i started with a landing net <laughs> believe it or not um because you know a lot of times we're in a flotation to you know some kind of watercraft or along the shore and
1: that's huge. you know
0: and if you can't land and control the fish a you're going to run the risk of harming it in a catch and release environment um but um you're going to lose it right or it's going to flip off it's hard to grab them so Yeah, I believe that was the first thing a good net that actually floats. Because the beauty of a, I I use a lot of wooden nets from a company called, a Canadian company called Moby. Um, They make a wide range of nets for rivers and lakes. And the beauty of a wooden net is when you land the fish, you know, you put your rod down, you can leave the fish in the net, you can actually let go of the net and let it float right beside the boat. Now you've got both hands to get the fly out of the fish to you know if you need to get a pitcher a quick lift and and hold it up and you know get it back in if the fish starts to struggle you can just drop it back in the net it can rest it's breathing it's in control and and usually that's why fish struggle is a you put them in the boat and they're going to bang around which is not good for them because of the damage they can do themselves and uh, they can't breathe so you can imagine yourself if you just run around the backyard doing sprints and then somebody jams your head in a bucket of water you're probably going to freak out a little bit because you need oxygen. You need to <laughs> get control again. So that, you know, that was, a, that was probably the first one. There's just tons of, you know, that, that chapter covers things like clothes pegs and like little weights to set indicator depth and bobber stops. There's a lot of Nietzsche little things that I use um, to make my day on the water a little more enjoyable.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Okay. All right, Phil, well, I'm looking forward to uh, digging more of this myself. So we'll send everybody out to your online store or they can check sure. you out at uh, flycraftangling.com and um, yeah thanks again for uh, digging in uh, you know I think there's always it's impossible to get to everything so maybe we'll, we'll check back with you maybe we'll get you out for a third time if you have time sure. down the line. Oh, yeah. No, but yeah yeah thanks appreciate everything you do out there
0: thanks Dave thanks for letting me ramble <laughs> alright
1: right. will right. we'll talk to you soon okay bye bye so there you go if you want to find all the links all the show notes and everything else we covered today head over to wetflyswing.com slash 267 267 please click that uh, subscribe button or if you're in Apple now you can click the plus sign in the upper right corner and, uh, and that allows you to subscribe to the show so you'll get updated next uh, when that ne- next episode goes live and right now as we speak uh, this Thursday uh, we've got a new episode uh, with uh, the new ho- uh, owner of the Fly Fishing Insider podcast Christian Pekas is here He's got a bunch of stuff going on, including the hosting that show, Dupa Fish, uh, this new travel site that he's, uh, he's kind of getting rolling. And we just had a great conversation about fishing Alaska and uh, just some of his experiences um, doing it himself. So some really, uh, I think it was a great show. So check that out. Hope to connect with you soon and hope to maybe see you on the river or maybe online. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.